Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. But what about these immigration numbers? For Canada, 320,000 in uh, the last calendar year, the largest number since 1971. Usually, when we talk about immigration, Martin Collicott is with us, former Canadian ambassador to Syria and Lebanon. And Richard Curland, immigration lawyer, uh, they're usually here as a tandem. Mr. Curland is not able to join us today. He's traveling. But Ambassador Collicott is with us. And Martin, thank you for the time. And what do you make of the 320,000 immigrants in a calendar year? Is that a good thing for Canada or not necessarily so? How do you see it? Not necessarily so. And I think you can tie this to the fact that the immigration minister, John McCallum, uh, has been calling for a, a further increase in immigration levels. Now, the government didn't, the Liberals didn't indicate they planned to do this in the run-up to the election last year. And the reason is that there is very little public support for doing this. So, uh, a recent uh, forum poll showed only 13% of Canadians believe Canada currently accepts too few immigrants. That is, they don't, they think, they think we have enough already. In fact, three times as many said we're already taking too many. So why didn't the government mention this? Uh, obviously because it wasn't popular. And why are they then saying now they want to increase the numbers? And it's mainly John McCallum, but he must be doing it with the approval of the, the Prime Minister Trudeau and the Cabinet. Um, it's quite clearly for political gain not because it's good for Canadians. Now, Canadians aren't anti-immigrant. I think we're among the pro, most pro-immigrants in the world. And my parents are immigrants. My wife's one. One of our daughters-in-law is one. Um, and immigration's done a lot of good for Canada. But it's quite clear at this juncture we don't need a lot more immigrants. Some, yes. But uh, increasing the numbers does not have public support. John McCallum went all around the country this summer uh, supposedly having consultations with Canadians about immigration levels, but it's quite clear he spoke mostly to those who have a vested interest in wanting them, and that's a minority. The majority of Canadians don't... Uh, the population gets larger, the economy gets larger. Well, with, well let's, uh, let's talk about that, Martin. What's the argument that Mr. McCallum would put forward for increasing the numbers of immigrants coming into this country? Well, he's made two so far, and neither of which is valid. He says we're facing looming labor shortages. That is simply not true. Two different banks have done analysis saying we aren't the former uh, um, parliamentary bu budget officer said the same thing. We do have shortages uh, here and there. They can be met domestically. We have the manpower, we have person power, we have the training. Uh, we need relatively few immigrants, maybe some and the ones we're going, to, the, the government plans to bring in aren't the ones to meet uh, our economic needs. They're going to be family class uh, and other people who. So are we then, Martin? Are we then talking about what we've talked about previously when it comes to politicians and immigration, regardless of whether it was a conservative government or a liberal government, that it uh, suits the political parties to bring in more people because those people will then feel beholden to the political party that brought them into the country and thereby they guarantee themselves votes. 
Yeah, um, and that's... Or is that too cynical? Guilty of that, but the liberals are going a step further. They're also reducing the requirements for getting citizenship so that people don't have to speak as much English or French. Uh, they can get it more quickly. They don't have to have such strong ties to Canada. And it's all to get votes. And I think the even the media now is becoming so aware of this that this is going to backfire uh, as the public becomes more and more aware, it is not going to get more votes. For the well, who does it? Who's it? Who does it backfire on? Does it backfire on the immigrants? Does it backfire on the government? Does it backfire on both? Well, it's. I'm talking about backfiring on the government. Um, the immigrants are going to have a tough time because in places like Vancouver, it's. Uh, uh, there's, it's very, very expensive, and uh, and it's creating a lot of problems here in terms of housing costs. Um, uh, but I'm talking about backfiring on the government. The government thinks this is a way of using immigration policy to get more votes rather than serve Canadians. And I think it's now the media is becoming more and more aware of this. Even the pro-immigration Globe and Mail has said we've got to have a serious review of uh, what's going on here and whether we really need more immigrants. Is there a number that makes sense? Because I think at the moment it's 1% of the national population annually, if I have that correctly. And that does that not put Canada at the highest rate based on national population in of any country in the world? We are at the highest rate, although the 1% has never been reached. Um, that figure was just thrown out there by someone some years ago. Uh, but... Um, we're, we're we're among the top, and we're among the countries that least lead uh, least need high levels of immigration. We can use some, but uh, we don't need anywhere near what we're getting. And Canadians are increasingly getting to be aware of that. Let me ask you this question: If the argument is made, as you're making it, that we don't need to have the numbers of immigrants coming into the country that we have, that there's a political motivation, perhaps, for doing so. But if you argue against that, if you argue against immigration, then immediately, and I've heard this on this program, people will call you a racist and a bigot. Well, that's been the main argument. Instead of getting into a rational discussion and talking about the actual facts, they say if you don't like it, you're a xenophobe or you're anti-immigrant or you're even a race. That is not true. Canadians still welcome people from all over the world. But that's quite a different subject from numbers and large numbers that you don't need and that are putting stress on the health care system, the housing costs. Uh, but, but the people who uh, want more immigration because it suits their interests are going to keep crying xenophobe and racist as they're doing in other countries. Uh, simply to get what they want and shut down the discussion. I have, I'm, uh, not, I'm not afraid to <laughs> take on that discussion. Mr. Ambassador, I have one minute. What is what is a number that makes sense? Is it, is it a numeric issue, or is it a, a, a we need this type of immigrant issue? Which one is it? Or is it a combination of the two? numeric. If we... Uh, Look at how many people we the economy really needs and can absorb properly. Um, uh, it's it's numeric. I won't put an exact figure, but I'll just guess that half the number we're currently bringing in would be quite sufficient All if right. we bring in the right people. But the government, in fact, is going to cater less to the serious economic needs we may have and more to bringing in family class because that'll get votes from people already now here. We're back to the votes. Yeah. 
Martin, thank you. It's always good talking to you. I appreciate the time. Thank you for asking me. Martin Collicott, former Canadian ambassador to Syria and Lebanon, and he has made immigration an issue that he's followed and spoken on and written op-ed pieces in the Globe and Mail about and other papers like the National Post. Been on this program many times. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The issue is immigration. And are the numbers that uh, are entering Canada now, currently, about 1% of the population, at least that's the objective, according to the federal government, or federal governments in succession, that just about right? Or are there too many immigrants coming into Canada? 888-225-8255-416-870-6400. What the hell does Trudeau mean? When he tells the New York Times there is no core identity, no mainstream in Canada, and that Canada is the first post-nation national state. What are you talking about, Mr. Prime Minister? Even the New York Times couldn't figure out what you were talking about. Uh, Joan in Calgary. Hi, Joan. Hello. <clears throat> Hello. Hello. I think we are getting too many... Our health system, every province is struggling, and we have so many homeless people of our own here that need to be cared for. And we have had through the years many, many immigrant grandparents coming in, and they're all old. I'm old, too. And I Do you, you resent, Joan, 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 listen to me for a second. Do you resent... Do you resent immigrants entering the country now? Are, you, are we at a stage now, and I'm asking that because of the questions that have been asked in Switzerland that have been put to the Swiss people by referendum, okay? Mm-hmm. And we'll talk to the vice president of the Swiss People's Party in a few minutes' time. Mm-hmm. He's been with us before, um, uh, Luci Stamm. Do you, do you, are you uncomfortable with the numbers of immigrants coming to Canada? And is that, is, that, is that because... Because... Finish the sentence for me. Oh, because our country is stressed now. So our so our infrastructure is stressed, and we cannot we cannot accommodate everyone who is coming into the country now. That is Jones' point of view. This is a global issue, ladies and gentlemen. This isn't just a Canadian issue. It's not a European issue. The Australians are debating the issue as well. This is a global issue because we have a globalized world or there's an increasing globalization that is taking place and there's pushback. And we've had the prime minister uh, comment on that and say that the pushback shouldn't be happening. Michael's in Brampton, Ontario. Michael, go ahead, please. Yeah, you know, I I think the one thing we've got to consider is that in the past, Canada along with many other countries, were land of opportunities for those uh, who were kind of in poverty. And so, you know, you're looking at that, a lot of people are coming into Canada going, okay, well, there's freedom, there's jobs, there's opportunity. But right now, there aren't the jobs that there used to be. There's still the freedom. But the fact is, is that we're allowing 300,000 people to immigrate into, into Canada. And we don't, have, we don't have the infrastructure in terms of jobs, in terms of opportunity. And so they get here, and they're, they're going to be in poverty here, too. And the fact is, is that we can accept that. But the government can't accept that many people moving into Canada and expect no poverty to happen. And what so they, what they, Michael, what they, and I appreciate your call, sir. Thank you very much. What needs to be done 
And we're told that it cannot be done because of the charter, even though John McCallum is one of the people who suggested it, is that if somebody wants to enter this country in a hurry and has specific skills, and those skills are required in a certain part of Canada, then the immigrant, in order to be fast-tracked into this country, should be required to go where those skills are required and stay there for a period of time, a period of years. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We're talking about immigration. The number is 320,000 into this country last year, the largest number since 1971. And the question that I'm asking you, and it's got our phone lines burning up, is this. Are the numbers right, too large, or too small? And you're hearing what people are saying. And it's an issue that is a global, global conversation. In some parts of the world, it's more energetic than others. Now, the Swiss people are on the vanguard of Europeans forcing their government to follow a different tack. And that is to enshrine Swiss values and require all newcomers to adhere to them. Prime Minister says we don't have any values. The Swiss people tell their government, we do, and you will follow us. And constitutionally, they're bound to do so. Uh, Just recently, by majority... And I'm not, I'm not picking on anyone or anything. I'm just quoting from what happens in Switzerland when they have national referenda. Somebody, somebody raises a question. Enough people in Switzerland sign on, 100,000. And when 100,000 say, yeah, that's something I'd like to vote on, it goes on to the national referendum ballot. And three or four times a year in Switzerland, they have these national referendum ballots. And whatever the Swiss people decide by majority, their federal government has to follow. You've heard me say that on this program many times. Sort of like an election every three or four years, except you decide what the election issue is. So by majority, the Swiss people recently decided that they would ban burkas. And the Swiss, again, by majority population not long ago, upheld the tradition of school children shaking hands with their teachers each morning. Now, I remember that because I went to school in Switzerland as a kid. And we all lined up and we all shook hands with the teacher. Male students must shake hands with female teachers. Failure to do so results in heavy fines. Now, in one school, two Muslim boys, 13 and 14 years of age, the sons of a Syrian imam, refused to shake hands with their female teacher, and that caused a national uproar and across the social, the philosophical, and the political spectrum. The Swiss people were determined to underwrite that students must shake hands of teachers, and that decision was taken and passed by the Swiss federal government. Now, the Swiss people again recently by referendum decided, as you heard uh, Lutzi Stamm, the vice president of the Swiss People's Party, tell us a few weeks ago, decided that they would vote against mass immigration. Mr. Stamm told us that the Swiss government said, well, even though we're constitutionally bound to follow the will of the people and you've decided that, and you've told us that there must be an end to mass immigration, we're not going to follow your lead because we consider that to be racist. So the Swiss government is denying its obligations under the Swiss Constitution. Um, Lucy Stamm joins us again on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Um, Lucy, thank you for the time. Our Prime Minister says that Canada has no core identity. There's no mainstream Canada. I would, I would venture that Swiss people would, 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 would take great exception if any politician in Switzerland were to say that there are, there's no core Swiss identity. 
You are right. You are right. And I hope the Swiss population is continuing on this path. Um, that is correct. The Swiss people think they have a national identity, and I hope that's going to stay like this. All right. I have to. Now, Switzerland's been a country for eight or nine hundred years. You have four official languages. So there's about six languages spoken, and everybody gets along. Everybody have to, understands the definition of what Switzerland's about. If you're a Swiss citizen, now, the uh, the Swiss people by majority make decisions, as we've talked about, uh, for their federal government in constitutionally enshrined national referenda. So, the No Burkas uh, initiative was passed. Students must shake hands with teachers and mass immigration. The next question is, or the question is, is this specifically aimed at Muslims? I don't think so. Because it, on one hand, our country is very tolerant, and also as far as religious questions are concerned. But there are some, some limits. I mean, to you as a Canadian, I don't have to tell you to an open society. It also belongs that you have to look, be able to look at each other's face. I think that is um, far beyond Swiss um, philosophy. That is the Western culture. We have to stick to this. So, so the Swiss government, the federal government of Switzerland, uh, has no issue with enshrining shaking hands, no issue with uh, enshrining no burkas, no issue uh, in, in enshrining uh, similar uh, referenda that have been passed uh, or decided on by the people uh, in Switzerland, including we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there was a referendum on no fighter jets to be bought by the Swiss military. Um, but, the, but the Swiss government, you told us, is refusing to pass the referendum decision to end mass immigration. Has there been any, any change in that? Um, no, um, or, or yes and no. Switzerland has, as you said, a wonderful political system in the following sense. Um, the majority of the Swiss people can decide on any subject. It might be, as you said, um, uh, um, uh, army plane. It might be basic questions like raising taxes, yes or no. It might be um, free immigration, yes or no. And the government has to follow, or it should follow. In some um, questions, we have the tendency that the government um, starts to refuse to follow the people. But indeed, and I think it's very important, the people can say we want to ban burkas. And then sooner or later, it will not be possible for the government anymore not to behave. And it could also be uh, somebody in Switzerland could say, I want to ban blue jeans. And if enough people in Switzerland were to say, yeah, I want that on the referendum, it would be, on the, it would be a referendum question. I'm just taking something out of the air. And if a majority of Swiss people were to sign on to that, there would be a law that would say no more blue jeans. And the government would be required to follow the lead of, of the people of Switzerland. Let me ask you this. I'm yep. sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Theoretically, you're right. And it's totally correct what you said. But don't ever think Switzerland, the majority of the population, will be so stupid to ban um, um, genes. Yeah, um, no, I, know I know it already, and you know it. Nobody in Canada, nobody in the United States, nobody in Switzerland would ban blue jeans. So what I'm trying to, what I was trying to say is this. Yeah, I, I understand. Theoretically, yeah. you're totally correct. What, what, I, what, what, what I'm suggesting is that the, the questions that are raised by on these national referenda, 
Yes. They have to satisfy 100,000 people before they get onto the referendum. So if it's a silly question like, let's ban blue jeans, it would never make it onto the referendum. You're 100% correct. Now, Lucci, who is allowed to emigrate to Switzerland, and how difficult is it to become a Swiss citizen? For example, I was born in Switzerland. Uh, would it be a, Could I, after many years of being out of the country since I was a kid, would I be allowed back into the country uh, automatically or not? This is the problem not only Switzerland has, but only in the other countries of the European Union. Unfortunately, we go more and more towards the um, principle everybody can come into our country. And once you're here, and you have a right to stay. It is a question of time until um, you get the, the um, or not, um, um, you get the citizenship. Or how, how, how do you say in English? Um, it is a question of time. The main danger is um, if you have free immigration, and we are close to that in Switzerland, then um, you can't get rid of the problems anymore. I just heard you said a few minutes ago that Canada apparently has 320,000 um, immigrants a year. Last year, you, last year. Okay, okay. If you exaggerate as far as this number is concerned, if you say one million can come, two million can come, then you have a problem. So when Switzerland, when the Swiss people, and it was the Swiss People's Party who put the question on, got the question on the referendum about mass immigration, when the majority of people who voted on that particular referendum decided that yep. they wanted to put an end to mass immigration, and the federal government of Switzerland said, no, we're not going to pass that particular legislation, um, what about the rest of Europe? How is the rest of, of Europe reacting to the decisions being taken by the Swiss people on these referendum questions? With very much interest. People from Germany, France, Italy, etc., they look at Switzerland and they say, gee, those people can vote on this question. And I'm totally convinced, convinced it is a question of time until the Swiss population can change not only the politics in our own country, but we hopefully have a certain influence on the other countries. In, in that sense, we all could see worldwide in a certain way. England now was an example. England said... Brexit, finished, finished, um, the, the, the people want to say, finished with free immigration, and Switzerland is on the same path. So, um, five years from now, uh, how is Switzerland going to, what's the law, what's the rule going to be in Switzerland, do you think, as far as immigration is concerned, five years from now, what do you think? I'm not sure, but one thing, I'm positive. Um, we're going to be more restrictive. This path, um, everybody can come into our countries. As um, Angela Merkel in Germany said, this is um, totally insane. I'm convinced in five or ten years, nobody's going to talk about open borders anymore. Well, there's, there's a long way to go and a lot of things being said and much conversation being held nationally, internationally. And Correct. Lutzi, and I really, a lot of political work. A lot of work. Well, it'll be a lot of certainly be a lot of politics involved. I always thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And I wish Canada all the luck. And I know, in that sense, they are much smarter than the Swiss at the present time. And because Canada would never 
open its borders for immigration as much as Switzerland has in the last years. I, I don't know about that because I don't know what Switzerland's situation has been like. But I, I thank you, as always, for the time. And thank you, and all the best thank you. to Lutz, all of you. Lutzi Stamm, Vice President of the Swiss People's Party. I don't know what... I really don't know what Switzerland's situation has been like. I guess it's been pretty much open borders, but um, that's how their system works. If you want to change something in Switzerland, then you uh, you formulate a question, you get it into the process, and if 100,000 people say, yep, yeah, yeah, I want to vote on that, then it goes into the um, goes on to the next referendum ballot, and then the whole country votes on it, and if a majority side, well, majority is going to side one way or the other. So there will be a decision on the, on the question that was raised and put on the referendum ballot. And the government is then obliged to respond accordingly. I'm just irritated by Justin Trudeau saying there's no core identity, no mainstream in Canada. Really. You know, people want to belong to something, Mr. Prime Minister. And if you're a newcomer, remember when I came to this country, I was so proud to be I was so proud to be part of part of Canada. Still am. So don't tell me I'm not part of something. We'll come back with uh, your phone calls. Thank you for your patience. Those of you holding on, we're going to get back to you at triple eight two two five eight two five five and four one six eight seven oh sixty four hundred. And the question again is, immigration numbers, are they right? Are the numbers too big, too large, or are they too small? Should there be more immigrants, less immigrants, or is it just about right? You know, when you're, when you're applying to come to Canada as an immigrant, you're not a bad person. You're applying to come to the country. It's how the country deals with the application and then deals with the immigration issue internally that needs to be discussed, debated, and satisfactorily dealt with to the greater satisfaction of people in the country. I know there are people measuring every single word I'm saying and trying to determine whether they can hang a label on me. Go ahead. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. This from uh, Candace to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Um, including myself, many people I know after years of post-secondary education cannot find a job. We do not have the jobs available for immigrants. The colleges I went to were full of immigrants who were updating their education toward getting the very jobs I'm after. So, um, you know, if we ignore what people are saying, if we ignore what people are thinking, if we ignore the issues that are percolating, we're not doing it ourselves or anybody any favors. It's not good enough to say this was the largest number of immigrants since 1971, 320,000 last year. We have to talk to each other about what that implies, what, what it means to everyone. To everyone. That's what we need to do. But there are people in the political arena who try to frighten you from having a discussion. Nothing is served by being frightened. Robert is in Napanee, Ontario. 
Roy, um, I recently phoned the MP's office in Peterborough, Ontario, and I said, your immigration policy, uh, bringing in family unifications, bringing over older people in, I says, it's nice, but I said, it's not economically viable for the country. So I was politely told I was, that was a racist statement. And then the second thing I said to him, I said, could you tell me the percentage of the Syrian refugees that come into Canada are of the Christian faith? Well, sir, that's very racist. I wasn't... There was no racism involved in either statement. I was wondering, you know, what percentage of people are what, and what people we have to really fear for and fear not for. Did you I speak mean, to Did you speak to your MP or an MP's representative, Robert? MP's representative. And and did you challenge the MP's representative? Did you ask to speak to the MP? Get the MP to call you? I call. I asked for the MP to call me. She never did. She never did. And this is the same woman's in charge of re, of uh, redistributing our electoral system, and. I said, well, you have a right to an answer to your question. And when you call your member of parliament, the member of parliament, I think, has the obligation to engage in conversation with you. Whether or not they agree with you, that's another issue. And, and the fact that you call would suggest to me that you're, you know, unless you're totally intolerant and shouting and screaming and being obscene, uh, then, then you deserve to, uh, to be engaged in conversation with Robert. I thank you for the call. So what, so what I said, it's about just hurling labels. It doesn't work. You don't have to accept it. It's a relevant issue. It's an issue that matters. It's an issue that government raises. It's an issue that government raises. And then they raise it, and we're not supposed to talk about it. It's not the way it works. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Very interesting case uh, unfolding in British Columbia, and in a case that's going to affect everyone in this country, ultimately, except for the people in Quebec who've already resolved the issue. Seems to happen quite regularly, doesn't it? Quebec resolves an issue. The rest of the country is still working on it. The issue has to do with health care. And the British Columbia Supreme Court is hearing the case of the Canby Surgery Center, private surgical clinic in Vancouver, suing the B.C. government for stopping doctors from providing medically necessary treatments in the public and in a private health care system. All right, so public and private. Um, also suing to stop the practice of not permitting the purchase of private insurance for core medical services, which is already available in Quebec, and I had a I had an experience with that while I was living in the province over the last 10 years. And uh, we're waiting to contact and get in touch with and connect with Dr. Brian Day, the medical director of the Canby Surgery Center. We um, had the interview confirmed, and so we're just trying to get through to Dr. Day. He'll be with us momentarily. I don't think the B.C. government is going to fight this too hard. And I'll tell you why. Because governments do not want to be seen to be the ones to be making decisions concerning health care, particularly potentially unpopular decisions or difficult decisions that might restrict the access to health care for, um, for citizens. They prefer the courts to make those decisions. And then governments can simply say, well, the court made the decision, not us. Let's keep trying to get Dr. Day, please. And uh, and so, 
because the government uses health care as a political football, and they've done that for, for decades, all governments, federal, provincial, they've all used it as a political football, we've now gotten to the point where what we have in place just isn't going to work anymore. It just isn't going to work the way it is. It's excruciatingly expensive. I mean, I heard the number $100 billion a year about five or six years ago. And we know that premiers and health ministers have told us over the next number of years, five or ten years, they're going to be spending an exorbitant percentage of the, of the annual budget on health care delivery. So things cannot continue the way they, they, the way they have been. And people are waiting terribly long periods of time to get to see a doctor. Four and a half million people in this country, I think it's about four and a half million Canadians, have no family doctor. The, the entire process starts to break down at the very beginning. If you don't have a family doctor, what are you going to do? You're going to go to an emergency room at a hospital, or you're going to go to a clinic, and you're going to look for help. But the emergency room probably will not have your medical history. They may have some of it if you go there repeatedly. Clinics may have some of it. Clinics, to a greater or lesser degree, would would have some of it. But if you don't have a family doctor, it complicates the process incredibly. And I know there are people listening to this program right now who have no family doctor. It doesn't matter where you are in this country. Listening to this program now, there are people who have no family doc. Entire families who have no family doctor. And that's difficult. That's a very difficult reality to live with. Who's going to refer you to a specialist? The family doctor. So we need to, we need to create a, a dynamic where, where there are more family doctors, and that's a whole other discussion and a whole other debate. But it's something that has to be addressed and has to be addressed quickly. What we need is clearly an efficient system, one that is going to serve the needs of the people of this country better than they're being served now. We're still trying to get Dr. Day. Um, what happened in Quebec? Let me back this up. What happened in Quebec? There was the Shaouli case in 2006. A man by the name of Shaouli, might have been a doctor himself, he went to, the, uh, he went to court in Quebec, and, and his case wound its way all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada which made a decision that Quebecers, and only Quebecers, this was exclusive to the province of Quebec, and people living in the province of Quebec, only Quebecers would have the right to purchase private health insurance. Because that's what Chauley wanted. He was going to have to wait an absolutely um, impossible period of time to get knee surgery, I think it was, that he, he was waiting for. In any event, the treatment that he needed was going to take an exorbitant, uh, just an inordinate period of time. And so he went to court and went to the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court said Quebecers have the right to purchase private health care. Nobody else does in the country does because this is an ex a case that's exclusive to Quebec. And then as soon as that happened, medical facilities started to become more available in Quebec. And I'll give you the example, the exact example. I blew out my back, my lower back. I had disc issues um, in 2008. I was on vacation and, you know, you, it's the proverbial bend over. Ah! Now I have a problem. 
So when I got, got back home, I was living in Quebec at the time, I went to the hospital, so I got to see, uh, got to see a specialist, a, a neurosurgeon, went through the process of the family doctor. And the way they work it in Quebec, if you don't have a family doctor per se, they have these clinics called CLSCs, and it's, a, it's, a, it's like a community health clinic. They're, they exist across the country. But within that health clinic is a family doctor who specifically looks after you or looks after you and your family. So I went to the family doctor in the CLSC, and they put me in touch with and sent me to the hospital. A neurosurgeon checked me out and said, you need an MRI. Before I can make any decision on what you require, we're going to have to get an MRI for you. And uh, then came the crunch. To have an MRI done in the public system in the province of Quebec, and it's probably similar everywhere in the country, it was going to be at least a year. So regardless of whether it's me with excruciating pain in my lower back or it's somebody else with another issue, you need an MRI, it's going to take a year to get the MRI done. Well, that's great, isn't it? And your only option and your only access is the public system. Because we don't have private health care, really, do we? So except because in Quebec, because of the Shaouli decision, you could purchase private health insurance. Private radiology clinics um, had opened. And they had MRI machines. So I called in uh, a radiology clinic. And uh, I said, you know, here's what I need. And I can get the requisition from the surgeon at the hospital. How quickly can you do a, an MRI for me? Now remember... In the public system, they said at least a year. At the radiology clinic that I called in Montreal, it was three to five days. Oh, and how much is this going to cost me? Between six and eight hundred dollars. So are you willing to pay the six or eight hundred dollars for the MRI that you're required to take care of at least diagnosing why you have this excruciating back pain, or are you going to wait a year? in order to get into the public system's MRI um, queue, or get to the head of the public system's MRI queue. That's Q-U-U-E. Coincidentally, when I told them at the hospital that I was going to go to the private clinic, somehow, something happened, and they called me and said, well, we can get yours done in a week or two. Anyway, so I, I had it done publicly, but I had the option of a private MRI clinic. I don't think that would have been available to me anywhere else in the country. Not in the, the way that it was in Quebec. So, we're still waiting for Dr. Day. So what we're going to do here is this. I'm going to open up the phone lines to you at 888-225-8255 or 416-870-6400. 888-225-8255-416-870-6400. And the question that I have for you is this. And remember, that we, we've talked about this before. There are only three countries in the world where you may not purchase private health care uh, insurance. One is North Korea. The second is Cuba. And the third one you can figure out by deductive reasoning. It's us. So would you opt out of the public health care system 
and purchase private care if you had the choice. Now, remember what I told you. I had an MRI available to me at a private clinic, radiology clinic, in three to five days. Whereas the best they could offer me, the fastest service I could receive, the absolute gold plate public service I could receive at the hospital, public hospital was one year minimum. One year minimum. That's just to find out what the problem is. Then would come the rest of the process, including whatever it would have included. I don't need to go into all of that. So AAA-225-8255-416-870-6400, would you opt out of public health care? Would you opt out in order to purchase private care if you had the choice and in order to purchase private health insurance if that were available to you? And Dr. Day's clinic is before the Supreme Court of British Columbia battling the B.C. government. Like I said, they're not going to battle that hard, the B.C. government, because they want the court to make the decision so that the politicians are not so Premier Clark isn't, isn't told, well, you didn't do this all that well. They prefer the courts to make the decisions. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. There are private clinics, and um, I checked them out across the border. I checked out Plattsburgh, New York, and I checked out Burlington, Vermont, and I could have done it that way. But I was talking about what was available to me in Quebec. And if I'd bought um, private health insurance in Quebec, and then I needed the MRI, that would have been covered by going to that radiology clinic in Montreal. It would have been covered. But in the rest of the country, we cannot buy private health insurance. Dr. Brian Day is the medical director of the Canby Clinic in Vancouver. Dr. Day, thank you for taking the time. Good afternoon. What is the, what is the battle about? And just in nuts and bolts, I've, I've been talking here about what, what I encountered in Quebec. And of course, Quebec, because of the Shirley decision, Quebecers have the right to buy private health insurance. But what is, what is your battle with the government about? Well, let me just correct you, because this is, um, um, since we last talked, which is probably six or seven years ago or more, um, we're now the only country on earth that outlaws private health insurance. So um, we're, we're, the, we're the total outlier. Um, you can get private insurance in Cuba and North Korea. But anyway, to, to answer your question, um, there, there, are, it's not, there were six plaintiffs in this case in addition to our clinic. And the six other plaintiffs were patients. Um, two of whom, during the almost eight-year delay in getting um, getting to trial, um, have died. They were cancer patients who whose um, treatment and diagnosis and treatment were delayed by holdups in the in the public system. Um, of the remaining four patients, um, the three of them are children. One of whom's mother will be in court on on Monday. And I, and I think it's important that it's pointed out that. To point out that this is not—it's not a private clinic vying, vying for rights. That I mean, less than ten percent of the of the patients we treat at our clinic are are BC residents. Um, but but it's it's the the mother who will testify on Monday um, had her fifteen-year-old um, son uh, with a serious spine deformity. He was able to play football and ride around, run around on the beach, and ride his bicycle. 
after a 27-month wait to get into the BC Children's Hospital for serious spine surgery, he has ended up paralyzed for life. And this would not happen in any other developed country on Earth. And so the, the, other, the other two are children, and then the fourth one is, 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 is the sole remaining cancer survivor. So this is, these are just illustrative examples of millions uh, of patients across the country who are denied access, um, and, and it's a denial of their constitutional rights. So our trial in a nutshell, our case in a nutshell, because as you mentioned, this is legal in Quebec, is, is to grant citizens who don't live in Quebec the same rights that the Supreme Court of Canada granted to Quebecers in 2005. And, and, and you know, this, is, this is a human rights case. It's a constitutional challenge. It's basically um, saying to government that you cannot, on the one hand, um, promise health care, then not deliver it, and then outlaw a citizen's right to do anything about it, uh, because you don't own our body, we own our body. That's basically the nuts and bolts of the case. Dr. Day, if uh, if you win the case, and I, do, I don't doubt that you will, probably at the Supreme Court of Canada level, but if you, uh, if you win the case, what changes specifically? What would change for, and I'll ask you to give me an answer in, in, in 60 seconds, and then we'll continue. I'll have to take a break, and then we'll continue. But what, what changes most fundamentally for the patient? The, the most fundamental change will be that you'll be entitled to, to extricate yourself from the pain and suffering imposed on, on you by government monopoly and government rationing. Just as, you, as in Germany and Switzerland and Belgium and countries like Sweden and Norway, um, that there are no no rules or laws to forbid you from looking after your own body in, in those countries and, and and elsewhere in the world. Sounds uh, it really sounds well. It doesn't sound it is it is draconian the way it's set up. Yeah, and it's and, and by the way, seventy percent of us um, either often usually through you through our work have what's called disability insurance. If you if you're if if you're injured on the job, you're you're, you, you have private insurance through workers' comp, work compensation, but you can be injured off the job, and the private disability insurer, in some cases, and we have examples of this that will be brought up at, at trial, uh, they're paying um, eight or nine thousand dollars a month to some some um, some workers while they wait eighteen months when they could pay four or five thousand dollars and get in right away. But it's against the law for the disability insurers to do what workers' compensation boards can do. So you could do the surgery before the end of next week. Meanwhile, the person, potentially, hypothetically, and but, but meanwhile, that the person who requires the surgery, because of the way the system is now, is going to have to wait 18 months, and the taxpayer is going to have to pay for all of that, and the person who's suffering is going to suffer unnecessarily. It's a, great, it's a great system we have. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Brian Day is, is with me, medical director of the Canby Surgery Center in Vancouver. And uh, the uh, B.C. Supreme Court is going to decide between the argument put forward by Dr. Day's surgical center and the British Columbia government, which Dr. Day argues that what you're suggesting is going to, if not destroy, severely compromise um, health care, Medicare in this country, and it'll be impossible for patients, or if not impossible, it'll be very expensive and very, very difficult for patients to obtain the kinds of medical services they obtain now 
under a public system. You say what to that? Well, the, you only have to look at experience around the world, uh, Roy. In, uh, in, you know, I've, I've worked in Switzerland and uh, Belgium, uh, England. They have the rest of the world uh, in the OECD, apart from the United States, uh, has universal healthcare. And the difference between universal healthcare in Germany, for example, and Canada is that they have their public system. Um, performs very well, and they have no wait list. So you would get your MRI in Germany in days, not not a year or many months. And one of the reasons that we will we will argue that um, well we will we will show that. But I mean it's a fact and an indisputable fact that Germany, with a population of 80 million people, over 80 million people, has one Minister of Health. Uh, Canada with a population of 35 million, has 14 ministers of health and 14 ministries. And you can imagine where the money is going. And those are the people that don't want competition. And I don't know a single monopoly that's good for the consumer. And what we have in terms of hospital and physician services in Canada is a government monopoly. And when the government says you get the treatment, that's when you have to put up with it under the current current law this this um this um this case will do the opposite of of what our opponents are saying in in that uh, it will the weightless in the public system will drop to um and and the difference between the two systems won't be quicker treatment there'll be no queue jumping because there won't be a queue the, the difference and this is the difference in germany and switzerland and france is is um, you may get you know lounge access or, or a nicer nicer room, but not quicker healthcare because it's quick in both systems. And just recently, the minister, federal minister Philpott, was in Vancouver at the Canadian Medical Association. And by the way, this case is about implementing CMA Canadian Medical Association policy into law. And she pointed out, uh, well, um, we um, we were just ranked tenth out of eleven by a group called the Commonwealth Fund as a health system of, of developed countries. Uh, the, the, we were 10th. The United States was 11th. And the top, all of the countries ahead of us have universal health care with a hybrid system of the type that we're, we're fighting to achieve in, in Canada. I spoke uh, about three weeks ago with a Swiss federal politician about health care delivery in Switzerland. And we pointed out that in Switzerland, Neither the government or any government nor employers contribute anything financially to the health care of the citizens. The citizens are required to purchase their own health insurance, but they have a tremendous well, – they have a, many choices. There are over 100 insurance companies that provide options, and you choose what it is, like you choose insurance for your car, I suppose. I don't want to be too simplistic, but, 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 but 99, 99.5% of Swiss citizens have health insurance – and and they do receive their service, their health care, very very quickly. Well, let's point yes. it out. And to if us. you're poor in Switzerland, the the government pays the premiums for you. So it's a, it's a, an interesting take on universal health care. Is that the government is only involved in paying the insurance premiums? They have private um, insurance, uh, private hospitals, and the private insurers are not allowed to. You know, as some of the fear mongers say, turn, turn you down. One of the one of the conditions of doing business is the government um, says you have to take all comers. And and the the other paradox in Canada, and this is shown by Stats Canada. Everyone is aware of this. 
in Canada, the worst access to health care and the worst health outcomes are in the lower socioeconomic groups. So it's not doing what it was supposed to do in the first place. The, the, the ideal situation is the money follows the patient, right? Because that puts pressure on the healthcare delivery system, the individual components, be it a clinic, a hospital, a doctor, it puts pressure on the delivery system to perform well or the patients will not go to them. Yes. Well, as, you, as you're, you're aware, hospitals in Canada are funded on a global exactly. basis. So, exactly. So, so when you go to the hospital for your MRI or your procedure, or your, you are using up their money, whereas in other developed countries, the money is attached, the funding is attached to you. So to you, when you, to go the patient. To the hospital, you are bringing revenue when you get, when, when, when you go exactly. for MRI at the hospital, you generate revenue for the hospital from the government, but, but it doesn't matter. It still, it still puts the patient as a desirable entity as opposed to an entity that is using up the hospital's revenue. And it's incumbent on the hospital to perform well, or I, the patient, will choose a different hospital with a better reputation. And I can do that if the money follows me. Dr. Day, is what percentage, I mean, does the British Columbia government pay for services that you provide at the Canby Medical Center? You, you, you told us that 90% of your, of your um, surgery center, um, you told us 90% of your patients are not from British Columbia. Well, well, they are from British Columbia, but they're not of the type that um, we're f- fighting for that could get private insurance. And, you know, one of the, uh, one of the um, paradoxes, too, is the, the wor- injured workers are exempt. So it's, a strange, uh, it's strange, but our biggest oppo- one of our biggest opponents, and they're funding the opponents, are uh, p- the trade unions. And yet the commonest demographic of a patient, commonest type of patient we treat at our clinic is an injured unionized worker uh, funded by the Workers' Compensation Board, which is, in essence, a private insurance company um, funded by, by employers. Um, that, but one of the, to show you how, how bizarre the system is, last week I had a patient come back to see me who a year and a half ago I'd operated on one knee for a ligament injury, and, um, and it was under workers' compensation. So um, with WSIB, you call it in Ontario, and he had his... Um, MRI in days and his surgery in weeks and was back at work in four, three or four months. Um, he'd come back having injured the other knee on uh, playing um, football um, recreationally. And, um, and it was not at work. Therefore, he was facing in the, in the public system a year's wait for an MRI and an 18-month wait for his corrective surgery, identical surgery to that which he'd had on his other knee. And his disability insurer... Um, was paying him four or five thousand dollars a month wage loss benefits for the year or two it's going to take him to get treated when they are forbidden by law from instead paying for his procedure to get it done quickly just like workers compensation can do that that's that's how bizarre the system is and of course patients not only deteriorate when they wait they are they they quite often and this will also be part of our evidence at trial become addicted to painkillers and drugs and they lose lose their strength and conditioning especially if they're in the older age groups the um i, I had the opportunity to live under the quebec system after the shawalidi uh, decision by the supreme court and uh, while i still went to see a family doctor at the clsc so the community clinic it was a 
and it was a family doctor dedicated to specifically uh, my wife and me and, and other patients, but it was a family doctor who had our files. Uh, I did have the option of purchasing uh, insurance or paying cash, as was the option for the MRI. It was either six or $800 cash um, or maybe having bought uh, health insurance from an insurance provider and then paying whatever deductible would have been applicable or waiting at least at least a year for the public system to catch up to me. It was interesting when I told them that I was going to the, to the private radiology clinic, suddenly they, uh, the MRI became available. And I said, that doesn't have anything to do with the fact that I'm in media, does it? But uh, I'm sure it did, because we know what prime ministers and other leaders, including union leaders, do. But, you know, th- this is not, this is, can be very serious. You know, w- w- the Supreme Court of Canada in the Charlie decision pointed out that um, patients are actually dying on wait lists. And we had a no. survey done by the Medical Post, which is the doctor's news- newspaper. 25% of doctors, more than 25% of doctors across Canada have had patients die while on wait lists. And we currently, are, in Canada, there are 4,000 suicides a year. It's not just about MRIs and surgeries. These, these are depressed. People suffering from serious depression cannot get access to mental health services. It, the whole system needs and needs a shot in the arm, and and hopefully that's what we we'll, we will give it. And and by the way, Quebec did not completely conform to the ruling of the of the um, Supreme Court of Canada, so they, they 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 didn't quite go where they were supposed to go. But what a surprise! Going to make sure that it, that BC does. What a surprise that Quebec wouldn't go exactly where the Supreme Court says it should go. Um, Dr. Day, just then, one one final time, in 60 seconds, please, how does the reality change for the patient who's listening to this program now, who currently has a provincial health card, and and uh, goes to a family doctor, providing they have one, four and a half million Canadians don't, uh, they have the uh, provincial health card, they use the card to go to the family doctor, they use the card to go to the specialist, they use the card when they go to the pharmacy, they use the card everywhere, they go to the hospital. How does the reality change for that person if what you're arguing for in court becomes law? Well, the reality, we don't have to theorize because it's already been shown in countries like I mentioned in Europe and right. in Singapore and in Japan that um, that the public system improves when it's exposed to competition. So that card will bring you, um, you there will still be universal health care, maybe only 5% or 10% of Canadians will buy private insurance. A lot will get it through their disability insurance or their existing extended health insurance that currently covers drugs and pharmacy. But the bottom line, and, and evidence from around the world shows this, and evidence in court will show this, is that the systems that have even a small degree of competition uh, perform better than, than, than the Canadian um, health system does. People will have choice. They will have choice and they will have access. And, um, and right now, being ranked 10th out of 11 and gloating that we're one better than the U.S., which is ranked 11th, I don't think that's good enough for Canadians. Dr. Day, thank you very much for the time. We'll watch this case very, very carefully, as I'm sure well, the whole country's watching. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.